0: Well, hey, good morning. Good to see you this morning. My name is Josh, if you don't know me, and uh, one of the pastors here. Welcome to all of you joining us online, too. Really glad you can be with us. Hey, big weekend, huh? Did you have a big weekend? What'd you do this weekend? Was it busy? Did you have a lot going on? You know, um, I don't know, maybe uh, maybe you joined us on on Friday night, you know, maybe you're here at, at church. You know, we were, we were kind of busy Friday. Had good Friday service here. And then Saturday was a full day. I don't know, was your Saturday busy yesterday? We had flag football yesterday morning. That was exciting. And then, you know, grabbed some lunch and then hung out in the afternoon and ran a few errands later in the day. And it was just, a, just kind of full weekend. And then today, I mean, today's Easter. You know, gotta get up early, go to church. Full weekend. What are you gonna do this afternoon? You know, I mean, because today's a big day, right? It's the the greatest day in the history of the world. Uh, There's no other day quite like it where there was a man who was totally dead, uh, professionally executed, and those executioners declared him to be totally dead. Then they wrapped him in hundreds of pounds of of uh, burial cloths, uh, threw him in a cave, in a tomb, where if he wasn't dead, he surely would have suffocated to death at that point, especially after he'd been beaten to a bloody pulp and then being without water and without oxygen and all that stuff for a number of days. And and then he rose from the grave. It's kind of a big day, would you agree? Not really a day like it. So uh, what are you gonna do the rest of the day today? Let's just get on with your plans. Get some lunch? We're gonna get lunch. We'll have an Easter egg hunt. How about you? We're planning to do that this afternoon. Then, then it's nap time. Anybody else taking a nap today? All in favor? I'm taking a nap. Then maybe after a nap, I don't know, if the sun's still out, get up and just go for a walk. Do you ever do that? Where am I going with all this? Do you know Jesus on the very first Easter, after he rose from the grave, after all those things happened, after an incredibly busy week and weekend. Do you know what he did on Sunday afternoon? He went for a walk. In fact, he went for a walk with uh, a couple people, a guy named Cleopas and then another friend of his. We don't know if it was just a friend, if it was his wife, but they, he, Jesus goes for a walk with them, about a seven-mile walk. It's like walking from here to Leesburg, in case you wondered, and just shooting the breeze and, talking about things that were important. And we're gonna look at that account and that story this morning from the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 24. And uh, so if you've got a Bible, you can open up to that with me. If you don't, it'll be on the screen and you can just kind of follow along. We're gonna be in Luke chapter 24. But before we get there, would you pray with me? Let's just pray briefly, ask for God to speak to us from his word. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thank you for uh, Jesus coming, living the life that we couldn't live, uh, dying the death I deserve that, that all of us deserve because of the ways we fail and yet you loved us in the midst of it. And uh, thank you for your life, I thank you for your death, for your resurrection to prove that uh, your payment was, was full and complete and that it worked and that we can have life. So uh, Holy Spirit, encourage us with that truth today like you did uh, Cleopas and his friend on the road that day. And uh, might you warm our hearts like you did theirs, just with the truth of who you are. Father, thank you for Jesus. Pray all this through him. Amen. Luke chapter 24, I'm gonna start in uh, verse 13. And like I said, it'll be here on the screen as well. Uh, That same day, two of Jesus' followers were going to a village called Emmaus, That same day, it's the same day as the resurrection. It's the very first Easter is this day that Luke is writing about. And they were going to a village called Emmaus. Emmaus was, uh, again, about seven miles uh, west, northwest of Jerusalem. That's what Luke tells us here is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Kind of like I was just telling you about my weekend They were talking about the events of their weekend, which were a little more dramatic than mine. As they talked about those things, Jesus himself came up and he walked along with them. Verse 16 here is an important thing to note, but God kept them from recognizing him. He kept them from recognizing him. So Jesus asked them, hey, what are you talking about as you go along? They stood still, their faces were sad. One of them was named Cleopas. And he said to Jesus, I just wonder like, how long was the pause before he finally replied, right? Uh, You must be a visitor to Jerusalem. If you lived here, uh, you would know the things that have happened there in the last few days. In other words, have, have you been living under a rock? Is your head stuck in the sand? How do you not know some of these things that have happened? And Jesus just kind of plays along. Oh yeah? What things? (laughs) I wonder if a little bit of a twinkle in his eye as he says that, you know? And well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet. He was powerful in what he said and in what he did in the eyes of God and all the people. And the chief priests and the rulers, they, they handed Jesus over to be sentenced to death. They nailed him to a cross. They, they crucified him, which was the most brutal form of execution ever invented by man. They go on, they say, we hoped he was the one who was going to set Israel free. See, the the expectation, according to the Old Testament, that they understood was that when God sent the Messiah, sent someone to fix the mess that we've created, that he was going to come and he was gonna bring salvation for his people and he was gonna bring judgment on his enemies. And so they were expecting if, uh, they really came to believe that Jesus really was this guy. And they believed it with their whole heart. And in fact, they celebrated it when he walked into Jerusalem the week before. And when he rode in, I should say, right? And, and they were waving palm branches and slapping them down. It's a huge celebration and here it comes. He's gonna set it all up. And then the next thing they know, what happens? Everything gets flipped and he gets put on trial and he gets convicted and he gets crucified and then buried in a grave. And all of their hopes in an instant were dashed. We really hoped he was the one who was gonna set Israel free. And by the way, it's been three days since all this happened. Again, where have you been? Where have, what cave have you been living in? Little did they know, he really had been in a cave for a few days. Some of our women, they go on, amazed us too. Early this morning, they went to the tomb, but they didn't find his body. So they came and told us what they had seen. They they saw angels who said that Jesus was alive. Then some of our friends went to the tomb and, and they saw it was empty, just like the women said, but they didn't see Jesus' body there. Then Jesus replies to him again. Remember, they're they're just walking, talking about these things. Jesus said, "How foolish you are! How long it takes you to believe all that the prophets said?" That's a warm greeting, isn't it? You fool. I mean, would you greet somebody who just, we just read that they were sad and they were downcast and then Jesus just in all his great kindness and loving kindness, right, just says, you fool, how does it take you so long to believe? Was Jesus being unkind in this moment? I don't think so. I think he he probably said it a lot more like a loving parent would say to their kids just in a really gentle way. Wow, well, you really don't get it, do you? You know, let me, um, but but you should have known better. You know, he said, how how long has it taken you to believe or how long it takes you to believe all that the prophets had said? We're gonna come back to this. Didn't the Christ have to suffer these things and then receive his glory? Jesus explained to them what was said about himself in all of the scriptures. He began with Moses, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, and then, all the prophets, and he just works his way through the Old Testament. Well, as they approached the village where they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. So again, by the way, it takes probably two to three hours to walk seven miles, depending on the pace and the terrain. So Jesus had been unpacking this for quite a while now, all these different things. And then as they get to the village of Emmaus, he's like, well, see you guys, have a good day. And they beg him to stay with them. They tried hard to keep him from leaving. They said, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The the day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. And then in verse 30, he joined them at the table. He, He took bread and he gave thanks. He broke it and he began to give it to them. Does that sound familiar at all? Any of you who might know a little bit of the Bible? It was, that was the exact same words Jesus used at the feeding of the 5,000. Luke tells us he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, began to give it to them. It was the same thing from a few nights before at the Last Supper. He took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. And this time he does it again and there must've been something about the way that Jesus did this, you know, and he prayed at a meal to where... uh, suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. But then he disappeared from their sight. He vanished. It seems to be that once they knew who he was, he didn't need to be with them anymore. They, they had his word on it. They, they knew it. They had confirmed it and they had the spirit to help them. So they said to each other, he, man, he, he talked with us on the road. He opened the scriptures to us. Was your heart just like burning inside as he was, you know, working his way through the Old Testament and telling us all those things? Like, did you just sense, like, wow? Weren't our hearts burning? And then they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. I'll bet the trip back to Jerusalem, even though it was uphill, was shorter than the trip to Emmaus. What do you think? They're pretty excited. And there they found the eleven. See there had been 12 uh, disciples, uh, close followers of Jesus, but Judas had committed suicide, so now there's only 11. It found the 11 and those with them, so there were more than just them there, other followers, and they were all gathered together. And they were all saying, it, it's true. It's true, the Lord has risen. He, he appeared to, to Simon, he appeared to Peter. And then the two of them told what had happened to them on the way. They told how he, they they had recognized Jesus when he broke the bread. It was like, do you remember when, do you remember how he did that? It was the same way. And then it was like, all of a sudden, that's him. And we recognized him. Isn't that a cool story? And uh, it's just an incredible account of of an amazing uh, conversation that happened the afternoon of the first Easter. One of the most profound and monumental conversations on any Sunday afternoon ever. And there's a few things for us to to glean from this and to recognize here in what Jesus does. First off is that uh, Jesus encounters us. Just like he encountered Cleopas and his friend. By the way, this translation I had up said the two men Uh, But in reality, it's uncertain if it was two men, if it was Cleopas and a buddy of his, or if it was Cleopas and potentially his wife. In in the Greek, it's a little bit unclear who the other person was. So it could have been just a married couple out for an afternoon walk that Jesus appears to, well, not just a walk, but on their way back to Emmaus. And Jesus encounters them and he, he starts the conversation. He begins the conversation. Do you know if... Uh, those of you who've chosen to follow Jesus, you would give uh, evidence of this fact too and I would in my own story that uh, I really wasn't seeking after him but in a different series of events, really Jesus encountered me and revealed himself to me. And uh, he does that with, these, with Cleopas and his friend. As they, they talked about these things, Jesus himself came up And he walked along with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. You know, it's the the same way. Jesus comes and he encounters us. He walks alongside us. He he doesn't, by the way, choose to love us because there's something good about us or because we do enough good things that then, you know, just like, oh, finally measured up. We're friends. You know, he doesn't do that. No, in fact, uh, his best friend John writes this, that we love, why? Because he first loved us. Paul writes to uh, the Roman church and he says that, that God loved us even while we were still weak, while there was nothing good about us, while we were still his enemies. He, he drew near, he encountered us, he loved us. In fact, he even died for us while we were his enemies. <clears throat> And he meets us right where we are. Right where we are. Right in the midst of whatever is going on. Um maybe it's been a hard week, maybe like Cleopas, you know, Jesus approached him and his friend, right? And what was their response when Jesus said, "What are you guys talking about?" How did he reply? Well, first he didn't. At first, it said, if you remember, they were sad. Like, you know, some of you, you're going through a season of life where life is incredibly hard. Or if you're honest, you just, you're like, this whole Easter thing, yeah, it's cool, but I'm not feeling it. (laughs) Like, my life is hard today. Jesus encounters you even there. And he did with Cleopas. He encounters you if life is really good. He encounters you right there. Whatever's going on, just as you are, whether um, you recognize him or not. He draws near to you. Even if you're like, I don't want anything to do with you. He draws near to you. And uh, in doing so, meeting us right where we are then, as we turn to him, he he rescues us, he, he helps us, he saves us. And he doesn't draw near because there's something good about drawing near to me, or to you. In fact, Paul wrote to a young pastor named Titus, he said, uh, he, God saved us, Jesus saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It was him who initiated. It didn't have anything to do with me. I mean, I'm as messed up as they come. And yet Jesus drew near. He takes that first step, he encounters us. The most uh, famous verse probably in all the New Testament, John 3, 16, people who've never been to church know this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever what? Whoever gets their life together, figures it all out, gets rid of all the junk in their life, binds up all their wounds, and finally gets their crap together, then he saves them. Is that what it says? No, that whoever believes in him would be saved just a, just whoever believes yeah but josh you know i i would believe but you don't know what's going on in me like he might draw near to me but i'm telling you as soon as he gets close he gets a whiff and then he's gone the other way i mean he he's clearly angry with me You don't know the things I've done. You don't know the things going on in my mind, in my heart, in my past. There's no way I can simply just believe. There's no way. Well, maybe you need to read the next verse because check this out. This is Jesus talking, by the way. For God didn't send his son. He didn't send me into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. In order that the world might be saved That's why Jesus came. And uh, friends, it's because of God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, that's why he died on the cross for you and for me, and rose from the grave to prove that it worked, that you can be saved. See, Jesus encounters us. He he initiates, he he encounters us right where we are. Do you know why? To, To prove who he is. He proves to us who he is. He encounters us, he pursues us, he approaches us right where we are in the midst of whatever's going on, even if we don't recognize him, even if we don't want him. And gently, kindly, slowly, he proves himself to us. Might be a long seven-mile walk, it might be a long seven-year walk, but he slowly proves himself to us. And he spoke to these two on the road to Emmaus, and he does to you and I on just the road of life as we go about life. And as they walk to Emmaus, Jesus begins showing them from the Old Testament, which is the majority of the Bible how all of it points to him. How all of it points to him, that it's all about Jesus. Uh, Look how he begins, verse 25. Jesus said to them, remember we talked about this already, how foolish you are, how long it takes you to believe all that the prophets said. And then he, he begins to unpack from Moses and all the way through the prophets, everything concerning himself. What really strikes me funny here in the way that he begins is that, do you remember what Cleopas and his friend had said to Jesus when they first started talking? After Jesus said, hey, what, what, what are you guys talking about? They were sad, there was the pause, and then he's like, have you been, where have you been? Clearly you're not from here or you would totally know what's been going on the last few days. You've had your head in the sand living under a rock. I mean, you're a fool. How do you not know this? And yet in reality, Jesus knew the entire time everything that was going on. And Cleopas and his friend were the ones who were clueless. They were slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. You know, for those of you like me who are Christians, you've decided to follow Jesus. The, the reality is that all of us started in that category, didn't we? Where we were slow to believe, where um, uh, maybe we thought uh, this whole thing was made up or fake or that Christians were clueless or uh, maybe we were just slow to believe. And no matter how many times Jesus drew near, we, we tended to shove him back and away and refused to believe. But even deep down, you kind of knew it was true. We all start that way, with our eyes closed, not recognizing him. But slowly, he proves himself to us. You know, uh, Jesus goes on to explain everything that was written about him in the Old Testament. It says, from Moses to the prophets and all of scripture, how all of it spoke to who he was. Uh, Things that were written, see, it's funny, Cleopas is like, how do you not know what's happened the last few days? And Jesus is like, "Uh, not only do I know about it, it was written like centuries before I came on the scene. Let me tell you about it. In fact, do you know there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ that he fulfilled? 300. The earliest of them dating 400 years before he was born some of the oldest upwards of 4,000 years before he was born. And all of it points to Jesus. In other words, God wrote it all down. But I wonder, have you ever ever tried to read the Old Testament? Some of those stories, you, you know some of them, right? But sometimes it can be a bit of a puzzle, can't it? I mean, it reminds me, I've got a puzzle sitting here. It's like putting a puzzle together, you can find some of these individual stories, you know, individual pictures in in the puzzle as you go. And uh, maybe you slowly piece them together and you start to see a little bit more and a little bit more. But until you get the whole thing framed up, right? Right? And then you you start piecing all the pieces in. Eventually you see that all these little pictures that you thought were just little stories in and of themselves, you start to realize that in reality, they actually form a greater picture. And they talk about Jesus. And that's what Jesus does with them over that, that walk to Leesburg, that walk to Emmaus, is he explains to them how all of it points to him how it's all about him. And he gives us a good, in, in good lesson in how to interpret the Old Testament to look for the ways that it points to him. You know, I wonder, as he talked about all the things that God had written down, he began with Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I bet he began with Genesis chapter three, verse 15. You know, right after God created everything in Genesis one and two, and then in Genesis three, it kicks off with Adam and Eve turning their backs on God and sin entering the world and everything just getting totally jacked up. But before God ever brings condemnation on Adam and Eve, do you know what he does? He promises to provide a fix for everything that they screwed up and that you and I do. And it's in Genesis 3.15, it says that that serpent who tempted her will be, uh, he'll bruise the heel of one to come, but that one to come will, will crush his head and, and fix it all. Well, that was pointing to Jesus. Jesus is like, that was, that was Jesus. And then in Exodus, you read about uh, the Red Sea and the Passover and, and all of God's miracles there and how all of that pointed to Jesus. And in, in uh, Leviticus, how there was this day of atonement, but really even that pointed to what Jesus does. And then in Numbers, there's this bronze serpent when everybody's getting bit by these snakes and they're dying, but, but God says, uh, hey, put up a, a, a bronze version of this snake on a pole and if people simply, when they're bit, if they just look at it and have faith and believe my word, they'll be healed. And Jesus was like, well, uh, so here's what happened. Uh, the Messiah was crucified, he was raised up on a pole, put up, died, and whoever would simply look upon him and believe, what would happen? And they believed God's word, they'd be healed in a much greater way than they were in the desert. And in Deuteronomy, and, and, and on and on. Surely then, when he got to the prophets, he probably went to Isaiah 53, which tells us uh, that he was wounded and crushed for our sin and our iniquities. He probably went through Jeremiah where we find out that the promised one would be mocked and abused. How about Zechariah where atonement was made for everyone in a single day? He he probably talked about Psalm 22 where there's one there who dies a God-forsaken death surrounded by his enemies with his hands and his feet pierced. All of this written 900 some years before Jesus was even born predicting the way he would die. Maybe he mentioned the faith of Abraham, who believed God would raise his own son, or Jonah, who, who spent three days in the belly of a fish, and then uh, God rescued him, just like the Messiah would spend three days in the belly of the earth before coming forth. And all of these things, he just went on and on, and how it all pointed to him. You know, I mentioned there's, there's 300-some prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that he fulfilled. 300. Some of them are really clear. Some are like, where does that piece fit? Where does that go in the puzzle? I don't get that one. I thought, you know, Jesus walked through all that. I'm not going to walk you through all of it, by the way. You won't be here all day. But I do want to look at some of the clearer ones. In fact, let's just look at some of the really clear ones that Jesus fulfilled briefly. First off, do you know that uh, over 700 years before Jesus was born, it was predicted where he would be born? I wonder, did did anybody write about where you were gonna be born 700 years ago? Yeah, me neither, me neither. And and did you control where you were born? Yeah, I didn't have much of a say in it. Uh, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little uh, among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth For me, God says, one who will be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, that that the Messiah, the ruler, he would be born in Bethlehem. Not only this, but that he would be preceded by a messenger. Uh, Isaiah says 700 some years before Jesus was born that before the Messiah would be born, there would be one coming, calling in the wilderness, uh, make straight a path for the Lord. We know that that's John the Baptist, John the baptizer. Malachi, a couple hundred years later, about 500 years before Jesus is born, prophesies the same thing. Uh, How about this, that he was to enter Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt. Zechariah tells us this, uh, that he would come on a colt, the foal of a donkey, about 500 years again before Jesus was born. Uh, How about the way that he would die? that he would be betrayed by a friend and then that his hands and his feet would be pierced through. Uh, Psalm 41 uh, is a reference to Christ and how he would be betrayed by his friend. And then Psalm 22, they've pierced my hands and feet. I don't know about you, but if there's a prophecy about how I'm gonna die, I don't think I wanna know it. (laughs) Yet there was one for Christ uh, in this case now, in the Psalms, approximately 900 years before he was born. Or uh, how about uh, Zechariah chapter 11? The, the one who betrayed him would betray him for 30 pieces of silver, the exact amount he'd be betrayed for. Check this out. Uh, then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as many wages, 30 pieces of silver 500 years before he was born, they predicted uh, how much he would be betrayed for. And then in the very next verse, predicted that that money that he was betrayed for would be used to buy the field of a potter. Uh, or that though he was innocent, he would remain silent, Isaiah said before his accusers. And as we read the gospels, we see that Jesus, when he stood before Pontius Pilate, Pilate was like, don't you have anything to say for yourself? And Jesus was silent. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Or how about the fact that um, he would die among criminals and then after his death though, he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. I mean, uh, again, don't have much control over when and where I was born. Don't have much control where I'm gonna be buried either. I might be able to write a will about it, but um, the reality is you all can bury me wherever you want. Yet this was predicted hundreds of years before Christ's life. God wrote it all down. He encounters us to prove to us who he is, like he did with Cleopas. Now, you might hear some of these things though and go, okay, but Josh, like, couldn't that have just been a coincidence? Or uh, couldn't he have just orchestrated his life in such a way? You know, clearly Jesus knew the Old Testament. Didn't he just live his life like to, to live out some of those things? And again, some of those things he totally could have, right? I mean, getting on a donkey and riding it into town, you can control that. Um, some of those issues, but he, he couldn't control where he was gonna be born. Or we didn't even look at some of the other prophecies, uh, who he would be born to. Um, all of this was predicted so that when he came on the scene, we would recognize who he was and our eyes would be open. Now, uh, let's think though a little bit further on that. Like what is the probability that somebody just randomly fulfills You know, those things. 300 plus. Well, there was a a professor, his name was uh, uh, Peter Stoner. Did I get that right? Uh, Yes, Peter Stoner. Sorry, I had a second guess of myself there. And uh, in his statistics class that he taught, he, uh, he asked that question of his students. And they began working through things, trying to figure out the statistical probability that someone could just randomly fulfill those things. Only instead of trying to figure it for all 300, they just said, let's just take eight that are pretty well accepted and pretty common and let's go with those. And the eight that they chose were the eight that I just walked you through. Those exact eight. And so they began working a scientific method to figure out what's the probability. And uh, eventually it got published in a book called Science Speaks. And the manuscript for that book was reviewed by the American uh, Scientific Affiliation In fact, one guy who uh, wrote about that evaluation was a professor at the time at Goshen College, just north of us, Harold Hartzler, and he writes this, "'The manuscript for Science Speaks has been carefully reviewed by a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation Members and by the Executive Council of the same group, and has been found to be dependable in, in general and accurate in regard to the scientific material presented.' The mathematical analysis included is based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound. And Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. Well, uh, so Stoner presents his case. And uh, do you know the probability that that one guy just randomly is born and fulfills, even in self-fulfilling some of them, those uh, eight that I shared with you? The probability is one person in 10 to the 17th power. So that's a 10 with 17 zeros following it. That's how likely one person would fulfill just those eight. You're like, I can't get my mind around that. Well, let's see if we can help. And Stoner does the same thing. He goes on to write, he says, "Uh, let's say uh, you take the state of Texas and then you take a silver dollar, you know, a little bit bigger than a quarter. And you cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. Now, to give you a reference point, uh, Texas is huge. Uh, But let me show you, here's how big Indiana is compared to Texas. You can fit Indiana into Texas seven times approximately. So instead of saying Texas with two feet of silver dollars, let's just say Indiana 14 feet deep in silver dollars. And you can wander the entire state and and one of those silver dollars I've marked with an X and I've buried it somewhere in the pile. You can go as long as you want, blindfolded through the entire state, up and down, anywhere you want to go and you need to pick out one. At some point you need to stop and grab one of those coins. The probability that you pick the one that I marked is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's how likely you'd pick that one. That's how likely one man randomly would fulfill just those eight. And the whole scientific method behind it was reviewed and confirmed by many of his peers. Well, Stoner, not satisfied. There's 300 some prophecies of Jesus, right? So let's let's up the ante, let's go to 48. What's the likelihood that somebody fulfilled just 48 of those 300 plus? So just under a sixth of them. Do you know what it is? One times 10 to the 157th power. So when you get home this afternoon, just write a one and then write 157 zeros behind it. (laughs) Double count your work, double check it, right? But that's how likely somebody fulfilled just less than a sixth of them. Friends, the evidence is is overwhelming and we could go on and on that that Jesus is who he says he is, that he really is God, that he really did die on the cross, that he really did rise from the grave. And uh, there's a choice left for you of, okay, do I believe this, that it's true? Or do I ignore all the evidence and just say, yeah, I don't believe it. If you do that, that's fine. That's totally your choice. But then you can't say that Jesus was a good guy. You can't. Uh, Because Jesus commanded people to worship him. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. I'm your only hope, there's no other way. Would a good guy lie to everybody in that way if he's not truly who he says he is? Would a good man command people to pray to him and worship him and honor him? No, if he's not who he says he is, then he's the most damnable liar to ever walk the face of the earth or he's just plain crazy. That's what C.S. Lewis said, he's just on level with a man who thinks he's a poached egg. It's one or the other, you can't, he didn't leave any room to just say that he's good. And when you look at the evidence, you have to say either this is true or "I, I don't buy any of it. And that's a choice only you can make. But friends, uh, wherever you're at in that journey, Jesus encounters you to prove to you that he is who he says he is. And then over time, to open our eyes. To open our eyes. To open your eyes to who he is, just like he did with Cleopas and his friend. He joined them at the table when they got to Emmaus and he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he began to give it to them, and then their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. Friend, uh, we can't see without God's help. We just can't, he has to open our eyes. Even Peter, uh, Peter was asked uh, by Jesus, who do you say I am? And Jesus, or Peter says, you're, you're, you're the son of God, you're the Messiah, and Jesus replies to him, he says, Uh, blessed are you, Simon, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven, he's opened your eyes. You know, it it reminds me too of uh, an account of Jesus uh, walking again, and there were two guys alongside the road and they were blind. And when they heard Jesus was passing by, they realized it was him. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David. And then we read that uh, everybody tried to, just be quiet. Quit bothering him. Shut up. To which they just cried out all the louder. Lord, have mercy on us. Son of David, have mercy. And then Jesus stopped and he called to them. He said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, have have mercy on us, open our eyes. You know, um, if if you would call out in the same way, maybe you have some doubts. If you would call out in the same way, Jesus, I don't know, but would you have mercy on me? Would you open my eyes? I, I believe with all my heart And scripture attests to it that he would do just that. That like he did with these men, he would have compassion, moved with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they could see and they followed him. Only he wouldn't just open, we're not talking about your physical sight, we're talking about the eyes of your heart, spiritually speaking, to see him for who he truly is because we can't see that without God's help. Now, some of you today, maybe you're kind of like Cleopas and his pal, whether it was his friend or his wife or whoever it was. After Jesus uh, vanished, they said to each other, "And he, when he talked with us on the road, he 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 opened Scripture to us, and what wasn't your heart just like burning within you when he spoke? Like, didn't you just sense? Wasn't your heart just warmed?" As he was talking? You know, um, friends, some of you today, you're hearing some of these things for the first time and your heart is just warmed. Like you sense, yeah, maybe that's true. I don't know that I wanna believe it's true, but maybe it is. You need to know that that's not... um, like Josh speaking in a clever way. That's the Holy Spirit working in your heart. That's Jesus opening your eyes and revealing himself to you. And your only response is to respond just like the two blind guys did in a previous account. And you can just simply say, Lord, um, have mercy on me. Would you you open my eyes? Help me see? Even if some of the disciples help my unbelief, (laughs) And scripture is clear, if you would believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, not if you'd get your life together, (laughs) if you'd believe that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross for your sins, that God raised him from the dead on that day, you will be saved. Um, let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to live a perfect life and yet to still uh, pay the wages of sin, which is death. It's a wage I've earned with my life. It's one I deserve. Um, yet Jesus, you uh, endured the cross in my place so that I could have real, true, abundant life. Both now in a growing way, but also eventually for all of eternity. Father, I pray for my friends, those who've trusted you in the same way that you'd encourage their hearts today with the truth of of Jesus, what you you accomplished for us. Uh, The truth that you're returning to finish what you started. And Father, I pray for my friends who, who haven't trusted you. I pray that today, uh, Holy Spirit, you'd warm their hearts. You'd begin to open their eyes to what's true. Only you can do that, and I, I just pray you would. Friend, if that's you, and uh, you're sensing that even in this moment, uh, it's just really simple. It's a simple act of faith. It's so simple that some, to some degree it just doesn't make sense. It feels like there ought to be more to it. But the reality is if you would simply believe that Jesus will save you, If if like those guys, you would call out to him in your heart, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me. The truth is he longs for you to do that. He loves you just as you are. He accepts you just as you are. And then he begins the process of making you whole, of giving you real life and loving on you. Father, thanks for Jesus. He's our only hope. It's in his name I pray, amen.